Hey, true crime friends. Welcome back to another episode of True Crime in Academia. I am your host, Mary DePippi. I hope you all had a wonderful week this week. Happy St. Patrick's Day to those who celebrate. Tonight, I'm actually going out with my coworkers to the Flyers game. Um, our goal is to meet Gritty because one of our coworkers is from Spain originally. I mean, she's also American as well, but she primarily lived in Spain the majority of her life. So we're trying to get her to have this experience, you know, of meeting Gritty and going to Xfinity Live after and riding the bull. And I'm just so excited. It's going to be such a good time. But I hope you are all celebrating and having a good time. But please remember to stay safe out there. Please don't drink and drive. I love you all. And I just don't want anything bad to happen to you. Anyway, this episode is a little bit different. It's still the Death in the Dorms series that we're doing. But this covers a very different type of violence because it involves fraternity hazing. Which we've seen time and time again that essentially like these hazing rituals become dangerous and deadly. And sadly, this was the case in the case we're going to cover today. So without any further ado, let's get into episode four of Death in the Dorms, The Murder of Michael Deng. On December 8th, 2013, law enforcement in the Poconos, Pennsylvania, were dispatched to a local hospital. A young man in his late teens had arrived with extreme injuries to his head and body, injuries that weren't necessarily consistent with a ski or snowboarding accident. The young man had severe brain injuries, and the hospital did everything they could to save his life. But sadly, it was no use. Broke college freshman Michael Dang died the following day from his injuries. His death was ruled a homicide. Michael Dang grew up in Flushing, Queens, New York, and was the only child to Chinese immigrant parents. His mother, Mary, studied everything she could to help her son be successful. With his parents' help and support, Michael got into the Bronx Science High School, a very prestigious high school in New York. Because of his academic success and achievement, Michael could have gone to any college or university he wanted, but he chose to stay close to his parents and decided on Baroque College in New York City, which I want to be clear, like he wasn't settling academically. Baroque College is also a very good school and known for their business program, which Michael was studying there. Outside of his academics, Michael was also athletic. He was really good at handball and was also a part of a bowling team. He had a very close relationship with his parents and was devoted to them. He was also described as being kind and compassionate by his friends and roommate. Now, in college, Michael was looking to find his place and found an Asian cultural fraternity called Pi Delta Psi. Now, successful businessmen were a part of this fraternity, and Michael wanted to be a part of that and also saw it as an opportunity to meet people who could eventually help him along the way in his career endeavors. On December 8th, 2013, Michael had been up with his fraternity in the Poconos. He was about to go through what is called crossing over. 
meaning that he was about to become an official member of the fraternity. Now, studies have shown that this is one of the knights that is considered to be one of the three deadliest knights in fraternities. The other two, including the bid, which is when you put in your you know, offer or whatever to become a pledge. And the next one is big little knight, essentially when you're, ple- when you're a pledge and you get your big brother or big sister if it's a sorority. But yeah, which is crazy because you wouldn't think necessarily, or at least for me, I wouldn't think that Big Little Knight would be a deadly knight. But I could absolutely see like the bid or, you know, becoming a pledge and, you know, the crossing over being two of the more deadlier knights just because of the amount of hazing that generally ensues because of those. Now, at around two or three in the morning, Michael and three other pledges were going through a ritual called the glass ceiling. Now, this ritual involves pledges being blindfolded with backpacks on their backs. The pledges are then to make their way through three tiers while calling out to their big brother for guidance. At each tier, other members of the fraternity are to block the pledges' way. Each tier becomes more and more physical until the pledge makes it across. During this ritual... Michael had started to annoy some of the members by asking questions and at certain points trying to fight back. Now, this really pissed off one of the members named Raymond Lamb, who then kicked Michael in the head, which knocked him to the ground. This blow was so severe that Michael was not only unable to get up, but when he could actually speak, his speech was slurred. And this wasn't because he was drinking. Because he wasn't. (laughs) This was just from the sheer trauma to his head from the kick. Michael was eventually able to get up, but he really wasn't able to move. It was stated that he would take a few steps forward and then stumble back. Now, this angered another member named Kenny Kwan, who then charged at Michael and knocked him to the ground for a second time. The members crowded around him and you know, tried to wake him up, but they described Michael's state on the ground as being stiff and rigid, which was most likely cortigate posturing. Now, cortigate posturing occurs when the body has sustained severe brain injury, and essentially it makes your body rigid and stiff, basically so you don't move. So in a way, it's kind of like your brain is like, it's a defense mechanism, essentially. Michael was brought to a nearby hospital by three fraternity brothers, Charles Lai, Sheldon Wong, and Danny Chan. And this was around 6.42 in the morning of December 8th. The hospital staff called investigators to come in due to the severity of Michael's injuries. Detective Miller arrived at the hospital at around 9.40 a.m. After speaking with the hospital staff, Detective Miller learned that Michael had sustained blows to his head and body. Because of the blows to his head, Michael had severe brain injuries that the hospital staff were desperately trying to get under control and just get him stabilized. Detective Miller also observed that Michael had scratches on his back and buttocks as well. And there were also older injuries to his knuckles. After observing Michael, Detective Miller went into the waiting room to interview the three members that had brought him in. All three said that they were broke college students 
and they were just staying at a house nearby as a celebration before finals. They stated that Michael was injured during a game of King of the Hill, where basically you fight to make it to the top of this like snow hill, you know, to become quote unquote king. Now, Detective Miller is not buying this story, so he enlists Detective Bray to go down to the house where the three said that they were staying. Detective Bray is greeted by two college-aged men who let him enter the home when he asks. Detective Bray then asks if anyone else is there, and the two men go downstairs, and 21 other men come up from the basement. What he thought would be like a one interview per person situation, Detective Bray quickly realized that this was not going to be the case. Instead, he went on to interview each of the 23 members three to four times each. This was due to the discrepancies in their stories. Some of the more talkative members would reveal basically certain details, and then he would have to go back and confront the other ones who he had spoken to who either left out those details or were just lying. Most of the men said that they were asleep at the time the incident occurred and had just woken up to the news that Michael was being taken to the hospital. At first, Detective Bray thought that maybe this was a college party gone wrong, but the house was way too clean for there to have been a party the night before. One of the members named Andrew Wu Cho informed the detectives that they were all a part of a fraternity called Pi Delta Psi. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, this is Andrew, and I'm interrupting what I know is an enthralling interview because I want you all to know that we are sponsored by Broadview Press. And if you don't know, Broadview Press is an independent academic publisher who publishes books covering topics like English studies, writing, philosophy, history, gender studies. And every season on the podcast, I interview one of the Broadview Press authors. So for the fall, we had Ann Stevens on to talk about literary theory and criticism. She played a Wizard of Oz literary game with us. She talked about why Bridgerton actually involves literary theory. So does Fifty Shades of Grey. Who knew? Um, and also. We just had on Jeffrey Weinstock, who wrote the first ever pop culture analysis book. So, you know, I am all things a lover of pop culture, especially my Hollywood topics, Real Housewives. The list goes on and on. And he also wrote the book called The Mad Scientist's Guide to Composition, where he's writing a book teaching students about how to write rhetorical strategies, but it's all around this metaphor of being in the mad scientist laboratory, because as you'll learn when you hear our episode with Jeffrey, he is a gothic and horror fanatic. And I mean that in all the best ways possible. So you don't want to miss Broadview Press's exclusive discount because you're listening to the podcast. All of you get an automatic 20% off Use the code Ivory Tower 
for 20% off site-wide on all of their books. So our in our show notes, we have a link to Broadview Press. Make sure you click the link, put in Ivory Tower, and you're going to get 20% off your order. So enjoy your reading, everyone. Andrew Wu Cho also revealed that the college men were there for a fraternity event and that Michael was a pledge and would have become a full member that day. Detective Bray relates this information to Detective Miller, who then decides he needs to re-interview Charles, Danny, and Sheldon. Their demeanor completely changes once they are confronted with the fact that the police know that they're in a fraternity and were attending a fraternity event when all of this occurred. Danny admits to Detective Miller that Michael was injured during the glass ceiling ritual, which I know I didn't explain earlier when we talked about it, but essentially it's representative of the struggles that the Asian community, specifically Asian men in this case, face in the professional world. Much like, but obviously not the same as, you know, the glass ceiling for women in the professional world. Now, while Detective Bray is re-interviewing the 23 men, He notices that many of them have injuries to their knuckles. He also notices that when they aren't being interviewed, they're all on their phones and being very secretive about it, which he suspects that they are communicating to each other this way. So quickly, he and Detective Miller work to obtain warrants not only for the phones, but a search warrant for the house that they're staying at, which thankfully they were able to get really quickly. Investigators search the house and they eventually find fraternity flags, apparel, and ritual-related candles and staffs that were pretty much out of sight. And I can't necessarily say that they were hidden, but they just weren't like out and about, you know, hanging around in the house like you would expect from like a fraternity party. Investigators also found wet clothing belonging to Michael in a trash bag in the kitchen which led police to believe that Michael was changed before taken to the hospital. At this point, police are suspecting some sort of cover-up. At this point, it's obvious, sadly, that Michael is not going to survive his injuries, and the hospital staff did whatever they could to keep him alive long enough for his father to return from China to be with him. On December 9th, at around 11 a.m., Michael passed away from his injuries and is at this point that the detectives are treating his case as a homicide. As investigators are learning more about that night, they're starting to understand more like the situation, but also the hierarchy of who is there. Charles Lai, who, one of the men who had taken Michael to the hospital, was Michael's big brother in the fraternity. So he's the one that Michael would have been calling out to that night during the glass ceiling ritual. Sheldon Wong also who took Michael to the hospital, was the pledge coordinator and therefore would have been kind of calling the shots as far as what was happening in the glass ceiling ritual. And Kenny Kwan was a pledge assistant. They're also learning more about this glass ceiling ritual and how it is conducted. Now, like I said before, they go through these tiers where they become progressively more physical. But the third tier is probably the most brutal physically as more violence is allowed. This tier 
is called or, you know, initiated by the pledge coordinator, who in this case is Sheldon Wong. The following day, December 10th, Michael's autopsy is conducted. It is revealed that not only did Michael experience severe brain injuries, but that he had had bruising so extreme from the top of his head all the way down to his tailbone. He had also sustained internal organ damage, which that's a lot of force to have to sustain to your midsection. It was also concluded that Michael did not have any alcohol in his system, which they did technically already know from the hospital itself, but I just wanted to reiterate that here as well. The other pledges opened up to the police about what happened to Michael. They stated that Michael got it harder because he, quote, wasn't following the rules. By not following the rules, he was basically asking questions and wanted to fight back during this ritual. Charles Lyde told police that, you know, Raymond Lamb had kicked him in the head because he was annoyed with him asking questions and that, once he did so, it knocked Michael to the ground to the point that his and he was injured so much, you know, that we discussed that his speech was slurred afterwards. He also revealed that Kenny Kwan had charged at him and how Michael became rigid and just unconscious after this. He said that the members crowded around him trying to wake him up, but there was no use. It was revealed then that the men had brought Michael inside the house and changed him out of his damp and dirty clothes in an attempt, you know, to try to warm him up. So it's not like they were trying to hide evidence per se. They were actually really trying to do the right thing to get him warm. They also tried other methods of getting him warm, just like rubbing and stuff like that. And they tried to bring him to consciousness by placing sugar on his lips, which I have never, ever heard that being a thing. But apparently it is. I don't know how it works, though. I'm still trying to figure that one out mentally. I was going to look it up before I recorded this, but I was just got so caught up that I completely forgot. So if you know, when I post the post for this episode tonight, if you would like to put it in the comments, that would be great. Thank you. Now, police had already known from the get-go that some time had passed from when Michael sustained his injuries to when he was brought to the hospital at 6.42 a.m. Which they knew because everyone was saying it was about 15 minutes. He was just, the police were just like, no, it hasn't been. There's no way. So, in reality, it was actually two hours that they had waited. And had they not waited those two hours and Michael got medical attention when he needed, he would have survived. Which is not only frustrating at their stupidity and like fear, because I do understand that there is a fear factor involved in this because they're young. They're, they don't have records. They're just going to school. They think this is a part of it. And they're not expecting for someone to die during this ritual. You know, I'm not saying that none of these men deserve to get punished for what they've done. They absolutely do. And we'll see in a little bit. But. I don't think that ever at any moment it was an intentional murder. A few days after Michael's death, Andy Meng, the fraternity president, made a statement offering his condolences to Michael's friends and family and stated that the incident in which Michael was murdered was considered, quote, unsanctioned and that they would be looking into it. On December 20th, Detective Miller and Detective Bray go to Baroque College where they meet Mary, Michael's mother, 
at his dorm room. They speak to Michael's roommate, who said that he was a great roommate and a great student and just very caring. He also said that he didn't see Michael that much because he was pledging and that when he did see him, he always appeared to be exhausted. Now, Mary, his mother, confirms this, but just chalked it up to that being the stress of school. It also seemed that she was unaware that Michael was pledging or really knew what pledging entailed, being a... And it's not because she's an immigrant. I'm not saying that. Obviously, these things can occur in other colleges around the world. But for her, she hadn't been to college, so she didn't understand this whole Greek life because apparently Greek life is more prominent in America and more of like a thing. So that's why she didn't know. Police were able to collect his laptop and a paddle that he had made with a letter to his big brother on the back. In early 2014, police were still waiting on evidence recovery and testing. They were able, though, in this process to uncover a camera that had pictures from that weekend and found that there were nine additional people who were there and present who had just left. So in total, there were 37 suspects slash defendants that were charged. Hey, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners and true crime friends. You've heard me gush over this incredible woman and her beautiful products. I'm talking about Mandy Made It. Mandy makes customized and original crochet and cre-cut goods. They are the perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind gift for literally anyone in your life. And she makes incredible home decor. I still have my pumpkins that I put out every fall. I just love them. Check her out on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E Made It or search Mandy Made It on Facebook. To order, just slide into her DMs. And if you mention the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you will receive a free personalized gift with your first order. So... Go on Instagram and look up at Mandy Made It, and Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. Again, her handle is at Mandy Made It, Mandy spelled M-A-N-D-E-E, and order today. LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? If so, the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. Have you been moved by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie, or what have you. In addition to the articles published in the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog as well as personal essays on its popular Here's My Story section. This allows people like you to share their own experiences with our readers. To learn more about submitting either to the print or the online edition of the GNLR, visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org and scroll down to the bottom of the page to find a link to their writer's guidelines. If you have any questions, email stephen.hemrick at glreview.org.
The GNLR can't wait to see what you have to say. And remember that they're offering an exclusive code with the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. So when you subscribe to the magazine, you'll receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. So that's seven issues instead of six. Again, just visit the glreview.org and click subscribe and enter the promo code ITBR for your free issue. Now, remember that police had taken all of their phones? Well, they found on Charles Lies, remember this is Michael's big brother, on his phone they found that he had been in direct communication with Andy Meng, the president, throughout the entire morning of December 8th, meaning that Andy knew about this quote-unquote unsanctioned incident, but clearly, given his knowledge of it, and understanding the circumstances, clearly this wasn't an unsanctioned thing. So his statement was just a total lie. But it also revealed that Andy was directing them as to what to do and aided them in the cover-up. But he specifically told them that he did not want the fraternity tied to Michael's injuries and death. Yeah. Basically, all that Andy cared about was the face or how the fraternity was presented to the world. Because obviously it's not just a fraternity in this one school. It's national. It's throughout the entire country. So if an incident occurs and it makes the fraternity look bad, it's not only going to look bad just where the fraternity is at that one particular school. It's going to make the fraternity in its entirety look bad. Not that I'm justifying. I'm just trying to... Give a glimpse of what the headspace was here. Again, not that the headspace was at all correct. In 2015, there was finally enough evidence to charge individual members with Michael's death. Now, each of the members were charged in groups, and it was based on the levels of involvement. Ultimately, Charles Lai, Sheldon Wong, Raymond Lam, and Kenny Kwan were charged with third-degree murder. The only person who did not hurt Michael in the incident that was charged with third degree murder was Sheldon. But he admitted to police that, you know, he could have stopped what was happening. Like he could have stopped Michael from getting hurt, but he just chose not to. As more members were being charged, other members came forward with information. One specific member named Daniel Lee provided the manual for pledging. There were also, in like in this, there were stipulations about getting rid of chapters, like that you had to, you know, burn them, like the pages that you had, and delete the electronic file. And there were also parts of, like, this glass ceiling ritual and other things that, because they were left out, just made it more damning. Charles, Sheldon, Raymond, and Kenny were able to plead down their charges to voluntary manslaughter. Charles Lai served or was sentenced to 342 days, which was considered time served. Raymond Lam and Sheldon Wong were sentenced to 10 to 24 months, while Kenny Kwan served 12 to 24 months. On November 17th of 2015, a trial against the actual national fraternity or like the fraternity's main organization began. 
Now, those called as witnesses for the defense or the national fraternity admitted that these types of incidences can happen, but without the national fraternity knowing. However, the national fraternity really did not have a leg to stand on in this case, and they were eventually charged with involuntary manslaughter, aggravated assault, evading apprehension, and hazing. The whole legal process of this took around four years. So it took four years for Michael and his family to finally get the justice that they deserve. Mary stated, quote, I feel like there's a cat clawing and scratching at my heart, hurting me persistently and relentlessly. I wake up and pray for deliverance. Which is so sad. Like, I can't even imagine. I mean, in the episode, they talked a lot about, actually, their lawyer, um, Doug Fireberg, I believe is how you pronounce his last name. He stated that, you know, she was very devoted to her son. And in general, in uh, not only Asian culture, but in Chinese culture specifically, you know, parents are very devoted to their children, especially immigrants, because they, you know, just want better for their children. They want, you know, like most parents, but given that most immigrants start with nothing and build themselves up, they hope that their children can have even more than what they have. And him being an only child, I mean, she just devoted so much time and effort into him, as any mother of an only child would. But again, like, it's just so, so, so sad. It's always so sad. Because it's clear that she is very upset and even some of the police officers described her especially like the incident not the incident but when they went to search his dorm they described her as like it just watching her as like her being tortured like it was just ugh, so horrible luckily though bro college made a rule stating that greek life and greek organizations can no longer recruit members in their school And this is in order to prevent hazing or, you know, what happened to Michael. Because, I mean, obviously hazing in general should not be a thing, especially to the extremes that they are taken. But absolutely to the extreme in which someone is killed like Michael, you know, they don't want that to happen again. So good on them. And this case sucks. (laughs) Because, I mean, in the other cases I think that we've covered, there's been a more clear-cut like motive whereas this was just hazing gone wrong and people being stupid and you know and also fearful of the consequences of their actions and sadly they let their that fear and selfishness come over you know taking care of Michael and doing what was best for him and sadly he faced the ultimate consequences So that is all I have for you, my dears. I hope you all enjoy your weekend. Stay safe out there for St. Patty's Day. Like I said earlier, please don't drink and drive. Be smart. Call an Uber. Call a family member. Call me. I don't care. Actually, don't call me because I won't be sober and I will not be a designated drunk driver. So because I'm not even driving myself, actually. So whatever. Anyway, enjoy your weekend. Stay safe out there. Don't forget to follow True Crime and Academia on social media, on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime and Academia, and on Twitter at TC and Academia. And until next week, my loves, I will see you later. 
Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Andrew Rimby. I really hope you follow us on social media because that's where you get to see all of the exciting video clips, teasers, and humorous moments. So follow us on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and on our Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. I hope you all are following the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe and become a member for only $5. You get all of our interviews and episodes ad-free. You also get to watch the video interviews. You get to see my lovely face and the guest's lovely face. And you get access to all the bonus episodes. So Dr. Jake Newsom talking about the history of the Pink Triangle, Zach Topping talking about being an army vet and what that meant when he wrote a war novel and a dystopian novel. You get to hear Gregory Maguire's breaking news about the Wicked movie musical, Jesse Green talking about Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein and what did Stephen Sondheim actually think about Rogers and Hammerstein. So head to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. Please, please provide me an iced coffee. I would love it because I need to stay up to do all these edits. So yeah, see you all in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe. And here is Mary DePippi from True Crime and Academia. Hi, everyone. I am Mary DePippi. As Andrew said, I am the host of True Crime and Academia. True Crime and Academia airs on Fridays at 730. Now to find all things True Crime and Academia, you can follow me on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime and Academia or on Twitter at TC and Academia because, well, they hate it when you have too many characters. Like I said, True Crime and Academia airs on Fridays at 730s. But if you are a subscriber, you get a bonus episode. That's right. A whole episode just to yourselves that no one else gets to hear. Like... I do a deep dive on the case of JonBenet Ramsey. I deep dive Casey Anthony. We talk about the history of the lobotomy. And most recently, we talked about the Night Stalker himself, Richard Ramirez. So if you want to access all of that extra wonderful content, go to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. And like Andrew said, if you could just please buy us a nice coffee, that would that would be great. That would be really, really yes. great. It would be great. We appreciate it. We also interact with all of you on Patreon. So ask us your insightful questions. We will answer them for you. And we want to thank our spring 23 interns, Andrea, Caitlin, Rosie, and Sheila. Thank you so much. And we can't wait to see you all back again in the ivory tower boiler room. Happy winter, everyone. <laughs>